coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. You guys know the drill. I'm Tyler, and I'm going to be your solo host today on part two of our final preseason mailbag of 2020. We were originally going to close things out, at least the preseason portion of mailbags, with the August mailbag, but we were getting a lot of questions coming in on social media, and there's been a lot of developments over the past couple of weeks, so we just want to give you guys one more final chance to get those preseason mailbag questions in before we kick off the season. Yes, we are going to continue to have mailbag episodes each and every week, actually, during the season. During the offseason, we only run them once a month. Sometimes it ends up being two episodes because we get so many questions in, but it's usually just the very end of the month. But during the actual season, we will have a weekly mailbag feature for you guys to give you a chance to have your voice heard each and every week. Share your thoughts, give us your questions, and we'll cover all that stuff each and every week. So a lot of fun there. But on part one of the mailbag yesterday, Curtis and I, we only got through about seven or eight of the questions, which is kind of embarrassing. That was an hour long episode and we only got through about seven or eight questions and we got about 20 or so that were ultimately sent in. So we're going to do our best to go through the rest of them today and cover all the questions that you guys sent in. But again, we do have a pretty short window here to get these shows in. Our window to record with our different schedules, with Curtis and Law School, my job, Charlie's job. We usually have about an hour max to try to get these episodes in. So we're going to try our best to get all of them in today. Uh, we'll get to those in just one quick second. I do just want to remind you guys, if you get a second, we would greatly appreciate any and all reviews on Apple Podcasts. You guys have been incredible in helping us out with that. During this offseason, we've seen a large influx of ratings and reviews come in, and we are so grateful for that. But any rating and review helps, especially those of the five-star variety. So if you really do enjoy the show and want to do one small little thing to help us continue to try to grow throughout this 2020 season and beyond, it really does help us if we get some ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, which we've gotten a lot of, and we're grateful for that. But all of those help. And if you don't listen to us on Apple Podcasts, which I know is a lot of you, and, that, and that's totally cool. No worries at all there. We, we appreciate and welcome all listeners. But just helping us spread the word on social media, with your friends, family, message boards, wherever it is that you interact with Georgia fans you think might be interested in our show, just helping us spread that word is a huge help. But we do have a lot of questions to get to today, so I don't want to waste any more time. Let's go ahead and jump right in. And we're going to start with a question that is very topical because this news was just announced earlier today, this morning, in fact, after being rumored since this past weekend. But it is now official. The Big Ten is back. They are playing again this fall with a 2020 fall football season. Obviously trying to find a way to sneak back into the college football playoff picture. And that is exactly where this first question picks up. So Philip, thanks for the question, Philip. Ask, now that the Big Ten is playing again, how does that impact Georgia's chances to get into the college football playoff? I really like the angle that Philip is taking with this question because, yeah, the Big Ten is back. Cool, that's awesome. I think it's just great for college football in general. Like I, like I said, guys, a couple months ago, my big concern about playing this college football season, yes, obviously I wanted to see Georgia football, 
But my bigger picture concern was, what does this do? If no one plays this year, if no one plays in 2020, what does that do for the future of college football? Does the NFL jump in and take over Saturdays? Do we ever get that back? What happens to the finances of college football? Are there structural changes? What does it look like going forward? I had some very serious concerns. Like I was literally like losing sleep over that. So the fact that the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12 were playing, or he's going to give it a go, that put me at ease to a degree. But the more conferences that we have participating in a fall 2020 football season, the better I feel about the long-term health of college football, which is extraordinarily important. And obviously, Georgia is included in that conversation. But I really like where Philip is taking this and looking at how does this impact this particular 2020 Georgia football team, since that's where all of our minds are right now. Like, what's going to happen with this particular Georgia football team? Because I think a lot of us are obviously we're all very excited about the season. But I think a lot of us think we have a chance to be a contender this year. So I, I really like this question. And I would say this, obviously, with the Big Ten getting back into the picture, and who knows, maybe the Pac-12, I know they're trying to put some pressure as, as much as they can on the governor of California, the governor of Oregon, because that's the holdup in the Pac-12 right now is for a while now, they haven't really, really been able to do anything in California or Oregon. Those governors, the, the local leaders there have just kind of been stonewalling them. So now with this rapid response antigen testing, they're hopeful that this allows them to get started. And they wanted to kind of be in line with the Big Ten, kind of work some sort of agreement out with the Big Ten that they would kind of work on this together and kind of announce something together. Obviously, the Big Ten just went ahead and did their thing because the Pac-12 is still working those things out with California and Oregon. But I, it does seem like they're at least trying to move in that direction. I know a group of USC players wrote a letter to the governor of California. I, I saw the the presumptive starter in Oregon was tweeting things out about letting them play directed at the governor of Oregon, Kate Brown. So there's a movement afoot there in the Pac-12, more so than we've seen. That's been kind of the weird thing about this. The people in the Big 12 have been up in arms as they should have been about not playing players, fans, coaches, parents, athletic directors. They were all upset. But you basically heard nothing out of the Pac-12, like not even a peep, which was just weird. It just shows you kind of the cultural disconnect with the West Coast when it comes to, to college football and college athletics in general and, and really the rest of the country. It's just strange. But now at least on some level, they're starting to speak up and there's a, a movement afoot to try to get them to play. And again, I think the, the more conferences that are played this fall, the better off college football is from a health standpoint. So I'm all for it. I know not everyone feels that way. People are still very resentful towards the Big Ten, the Pac-12 for, for going at this alone and trying to steamroll everyone and trying to bully all the other conferences, which is exactly, especially what the Big Ten did. They absolutely thought they were more important than they were. They thought that they could just announce they weren't playing and that would pressure. At first, they thought they could leak it out and that might pressure the other conferences. When that didn't work, they just flat out canceled the season thinking, oh, of course, all the conferences, they're going to have to follow suit because they're going to get killed in the media. Well, you know what? They got killed in, in segments of the media, but there were other parts of the media that said, you know what? No, like, this is ridiculous. And so the rest of the conference has called their bluff, the remaining three. And now the Big Ten obviously has to backtrack because they look foolish when you have to try to justify to the players in the Big Ten why you are allowed to play when they're sitting there watching conferences all across the country, at least in the Southeast and in the, in the, in the Southwest, Midwest, watching those teams play. I can imagine how difficult that is for a Big Ten player, a Pac-12 player, to not be able to play when you're sitting, not even really be able to practice when you're watching teams play full games. So they had to backtrack. That's on them. They've got egg on their face. I have no sympathy for them, honestly, because they did. They tried to bully the other conferences into following suit, and it didn't work out for them. They called their bluff, and sucks for them. And we'll get to that in a second here, but 
I am glad that they are playing at this point. I know a lot of people aren't, but I'm glad that they're playing again for the long-term health of college football. But how does this impact Georgia's chances of getting the college football playoff? I would say it doesn't help. Obviously, the downside to having more teams playing and more conferences playing this fall is that there's more competition for those select few four college football playoff spots, right? There's only so many to go around. The fewer teams there are to compete for those spots, the more likely you are to get in. And if there's only three conferences playing, well, you, you, maybe you take the three conference champions if it works out that way, but there's at least going to be one kind of at-large team. You know there's going to be one at-large team. There's only three major conferences playing. Maybe someone from the group of five sneaks in. Obviously, the Sun Belt had a really great weekend last weekend. You got UCF and Cincinnati that should be good in the American Conference again. But there was an at-large team, so maybe you get a second SEC team in. Uh, if you look at the SEC, I think obviously top to bottom that conference is stronger than the Big 12, especially after what happened last week with the Sun Belt. And then obviously stronger than the ACC as well, though Clemson is very, very good. The ACC is it's fine. It's a Power 5 conference, but it's not as particularly strong Power 5 conference right now. There's not a ton of top teams outside of Clemson. So I was thinking, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, all right, so the SEC champion gets in, right? So if it's Alabama, whatever. Uh, they get in, and then let's see, Clemson gets in as the ACC champion. If Oklahoma goes undefeated, even though the Big 12 took a really big hit this past weekend, I think that really does hurt the Big 10. So even if Oklahoma goes undefeated, or if Oklahoma loses a game, I don't know now, even if they win the Big 12, because if you have teams losing to Coastal Carolina, Louisiana, and losing to Arkansas State at home, and those, especially Kansas State and Iowa State, Iowa State was considered a, a contender by a lot of people for the for the Big 12 title this year. When you got a returning quarterback in Brock Purdy in his third year, they were considered a, a contender. People are really high on Matt Campbell as the head coach. And then they really just, I mean, they got, I don't want to say blown out, but I mean, they got beat comfortably by Louisiana Lafayette. I guess now it's just Louisiana. 31-14 at home. So unless Oklahoma, or maybe even Texas, I think Texas has a shot this year. I don't want to say Texas is back, but I think they're going to be a contender in the Big 12. I think whoever wins the Big 12 I think they have to go undefeated. Even if they win the conference title with only one loss, I think they've got to go undefeated because let's say Oklahoma is at, you know, they win the Big 12 and they are sitting there at 10-1, right? The question becomes, who have you beaten? Okay, yeah, you beat Iowa State. Cool, Iowa State lost at home to Louisiana. You beat Kansas State. All right, cool. Kansas State lost at home to Arkansas State. You beat Kansas. Cool. Kansas lost at home to Coastal Carolina. Who have you beaten? I guess maybe Texas. Texas Tech beats Houston Baptist by two points at home, 35-33. So I just, I think the Big 12 took a major hit this past weekend. And the thing is, you don't have premier non-conference matchups to really make up for those losses to Louisiana. So let's say Iowa State, if they if they lose Louisiana, but then they have a non-conference matchup with Iowa and they beat Iowa out of the Big Ten, well, that kind of makes up for it. It's okay. So Oklahoma can say, yeah, they lost Louisiana, but they also beat Iowa out of conference. Those opportunities aren't there. So in your one out-of-conference game, if you're losing those games to group of five opponents, that really causes your conference to take a hit. So if you have Oklahoma sitting there at 10-1 and after a win in the Big 12 title game, and then you've got, let's say, a Georgia, maybe, right? So we get to the SEC title game at, I don't know, let's say 10-0, and right? Let's say we're 10-0 and and we lose the title game to Alabama. We're sitting there at 9-1. and uh, We're sitting there at 10-1. and Okay, well, we didn't win our conference title, but if you look at the, our schedule and teams that we had to beat to get to that point, I think absolutely you would argue that we have a stronger resume. I think that would be true than Oklahoma. And honestly, even if we, let's say, we get to the SEC title game 9-1 and and that loss is maybe to Alabama in the regular season, and then we lose Alabama again in the college football playoff. 
So in that scenario, our two losses would be to the likely number one team in the country. You're telling me that Georgia would not deserve to be, and even though we have two losses and we didn't win our conference title, you're telling me that we would not deserve to be in over a, a, a one-loss Big 12 champion Oklahoma team based on the schedule that we had to get through, the teams that we had to beat. We would have better wins. That We would just simply have better wins than them. So I think there's a chance right now, the way it was sitting prior to the Big Ten deciding they're going to jump in there if there were only three Power 5 conferences, I really thought for the first time that we had a legitimate shot to get into the college football playoff, even if we did not end up winning the SEC title. I did not think that would be a killer for us like it was in 2018 and 2019, where each of the past two years, we were the first team left out of the college football playoff, coming at number five in the final college football playoff rankings. I thought there was a chance to still get into the college football playoff, even if we did not win the SEC championship, even if we lost one game in the regular season, plus that loss in the SEC title, when you only have three power five conferences playing. I thought there was a real shot. Now, obviously, I would prefer us to win the SEC title and go undefeated in the regular season, but you can't necessarily count on that. When you're playing in teams like Alabama, I mean, those teams are really, really good. The margins are very thin. Can we win those games? Sure, but it's tough to absolutely count on that. So the fact that you have a team like Ohio State coming back into the picture, maybe a team like Penn State, maybe, I don't know, with Micah Parsons out, I I don't know if I ever, I really did not consider Penn State a, a true national title contender and really even a playoff contender coming into this season. Michigan, I don't think is really there right now. I think Ohio State is probably the only real team that's a contender for the college football playoff, but they are a real contender. So when they're back in the picture, does that reduce our margin for error? Would they be would they be the ones that would jump in ahead of us? Now, even if there are only four conference power five conferences playing, well, then you could say, oh, well, we take the four power five conference champions. But I don't think that should be written in stone. I, I, I don't buy that because I don't think all conferences are created equally. I don't think all schedules are created equally. So in that scenario, even if Ohio State does play, and let's say they get in, going undefeated in their regular season and they win the Big Ten championship, okay, they're in. If you have Clemson goes undefeated, or Clemson will be in, right? Because they're going to win the ACC title. No one's going to beat them. I don't, I don't see Notre Dame really being a major contender for them. I really don't at this point. And then you got the SEC champion. Well, you still got one spot. So maybe we were still getting it over Oklahoma anyway. But here's another thing I would put out there. I, I just don't think that the Big Ten, honestly, if you're going to play an eight-game regular season schedule, I don't think they should get in over other conferences. I really don't. I don't think that, like, let's say Ohio State goes undefeated with eight games and they win the Big Ten title. That means they played nine games. Well, let's say Georgia finds a way to somehow pull out the victory against Alabama in Tuscaloosa. We, We win the regular season matchup. So let's say we go through the regular season undefeated and then we lose to Alabama in the conference title game that gives us one loss. Well, Ohio State went undefeated. And it obviously depends on what goes on in the other conferences. None of this happens in a vacuum. But if you have a one-loss Georgia team sitting there with that one loss being in the conference title game to Alabama, so we're sitting there at 10-1, and and then you have Ohio State sitting there at 9-0. and Yes, they won their conference. Yes, they were undefeated. But you know what? They also played two fewer games. And they played those games that they did play against inferior competitions. The rest of the Big Ten is just not going to stack up against the SEC schedule that we're playing right now. And I would also argue this. The college playoff, since its inception, the committee has always used the number of data points against teams. Like they use that against Notre Dame at times. 
They used that against Baylor in the very first year of the college football playoff. I mean, guys, that is the exact reason why the Big 12 championship game exists right now. It exists because in that first year of the college football playoff, Baylor got left out because what the committee said is, you don't have as many data points. That's the phrase they use. You don't have as many data points, aka you did not play as many games against top teams because you didn't have a conference championship game like these other teams did, like these other conferences have. So that has been used against teams in the past. It absolutely has. So why would it all of a sudden not be used against teams in the Big Ten like Ohio State? Yes, I know these are unusual circumstances, but the situation the Big Ten finds itself in, that is the doing of the Big Ten and the Big Ten alone. I know not everyone in the Big Ten was on board with that. I know the players and the coaches and most of the ADs were not on board with that. It was more of a, a, a college president's decision, but the fact is the Big Ten chose to start a month after everyone else. They chose to put themselves in a situation where they can only play eight regular season games. I know they're doing that kind of like crossover matchup on, on conference championship week, which is actually a pretty cool idea. So every team will actually end up playing nine games. But if you're comparing those teams to SEC teams that play in the conference title game, well, they're playing 11 games. So the loser of the SEC title game will have played 11 games. So that just gives them more data points, which is something that the College Football Playoff Committee has already used in its past history to justify keeping other teams like Baylor out of the college playoff. It's already been used, so why are we just going to ignore it right now? The fact is not only are you playing one fewer game, you're playing two fewer games. I just don't think that they deserve right now, even if those teams are undefeated, and you might think, well, this is one of the best teams. You have two fewer data points, and that's important, guys. That means you have two fewer opportunities to lose a game than a team in the SEC or the ACC or the Big 12. It's, it's absolutely a critical point to make when we would be playing 11 games with a conference title game against SEC opponents, while the Big Ten would have only played nine games against conference opponents, nine games in general. I just personally, if it comes down to a team in the Big Ten versus a non-champion SEC team that may be sitting there with one loss, and depending on the circumstances and the schedule, maybe even two losses, and maybe that Big Ten champion has one loss, I mean, you could look at it that way, but if, if those are the final two teams, and you for that final spot in the college playoff, and you're comparing the Big Ten champion that only played nine games and the SEC runner-up that played 11 games, even if they didn't win their conference, I think that the fact that you play two more conference games, you have two more data points in the best conference in America, that should trump the fact that the Big Ten won their conference title. That should trump a conference championship in this unique season. That's my opinion. But I am not at all confident that that is how the college playoff committee will view this. I, I am not confident in that at all. In fact, I would I would be surprised if there weren't some like back channel conversations between the powers that be in the Big Ten and the powers that be in the college football playoff committee to see, okay, well, you know what? If we started to play and we only played eight games in the regular season and then we had a conference championship game, would nine games be enough for our teams to be legitimately considered for the college football playoff or we would, would we just be disqualified out of hand because we didn't play as many games? I have to believe that those conversations were had behind closed doors and, and kind of on the back channels there. Because I, I, unless they had some strong feeling that they were going to be involved in the college football playoff, I don't know how much of a push there would have been for the Big Ten to, to reverse course like they have so publicly and play in the fall. Maybe that didn't happen, but I have to believe there was some talking going on among those different powers between the college football playoff and, and the Big Ten powers. So, I think that the committee will absolutely not hold that against them. 
I, I firmly believe, I expect Ohio State to run through the Big Ten without much of an issue. I think they're head and shoulders above better than all the other teams in that conference. They're going to go undefeated in the regular season. They're going to win the Big Ten championship, and they're going to end up in the college football playoff. And then you have, here. it's going to be our luck. Here's Georgia sitting there, and you're like, okay, well, Ohio State's in. Let's say Oklahoma ends up going undefeated, and even though the Big 12 has looked bad, Let's say the committee goes ahead and puts them in, because that's kind of been their MO, right? Like if you win the conference championship, it doesn't matter if your conference is terrible. If you win that conference title and you go on, and you go undefeated, sometimes even if you go with one loss and you win the conference title, you go ahead and you get the nod. We've seen that two years in a row with Oklahoma getting in over us, even though that's because they play in a much weaker conference in the SEC. They don't have to play an Alabama or an LSU in their conference title game. They're just fortunate and they still get in. So uh, let's say Oklahoma gets in, Ohio State gets in, Clemson gets in, and then you got Alabama getting in. I firmly expect it to, to, to come down to that. I don't think now I'm very concerned that if Georgia goes undefeated in the regular season and ends up losing to Alabama in the conference title game, or if we go nine and one in the regular season and lose again, if we have two losses now, I don't think there's a chance at this point with the Big Ten playing now with Ohio State back in the picture. If we lose one game in the regular season, still find a way to get into the conference title game and then lose the conference title game, have two losses that way, I just don't think there's any chance we get in now with Ohio State back in the picture. And maybe there wasn't before Ohio State and the Big Ten decided they were going to play again. Maybe there wasn't, but I think there was certainly, the door was open. I think there was certainly a possibility that that could happen when you only have three power five conferences playing and there's just fewer teams involved. When you look at our schedule and who we would have lost to likely in those scenarios, I think even with two losses, one the regular season and one the conference title game, I think we could have snuck in there potentially as that number four seed. Now, hopefully it doesn't come down to that, but I don't think we have a chance with two losses, even if one of those losses comes in the conference title game. And now I'm, I'm concerned, even if we sit there, let's say we go undefeated in the regular season, we lose the conference title game, that's our only loss. I'm I'm concerned about us getting in because I think Ohio State's going to, again, I think they're going to go undefeated and, and probably get in. I don't think the college playoff committee is going to hold that against them. I think Oklahoma should be able to run through that schedule. I think Texas is their only challenge there. I think Texas or Oklahoma will probably go undefeated in the regular season and find themselves in the college playoff like they have the past couple years. You got Clemson and you got the SEC champion. And I think we might get left out even if we go undefeated in the regular season. And so, yeah, I, I do think this negatively impacts Georgia. It's great for the for the health of college football. And I like the fact that now you're not going to have as many people if, if we happen to be really, really good and really contend for the title and get in the college football playoff. I like the fact that you're not going to have people screaming asterisk, 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 because, of course, that would have been our luck. But we got to get there first. And right now, I do think this impacts our ability in a negative way to actually get in the college football playoff if we do not end up winning the SEC title again like we've seen the past two years. So I do I, I do think this is not necessarily great news for the University of Georgia's 2020 football team. And we've got a ton more questions to get to, guys. But before we continue on, I do want to pause real quick and tell you about our good friends at MyBookie. College football is back in a big way, guys. It's here. It's beautiful. It's incredible. Now we're going to have even more games to bet on with the Big Ten coming back. Their schedule's going to be out soon. Who knows? Maybe the Pac-12 will be back and you have all the college football back. Even more games to bet on. Yeah, it might be tougher for our guys to get the college football playoff now. That difficulty gets kicked up a notch or two. But you'll have more games to bet on, which means potentially, hopefully, more money in your pocket. So put your knowledge to use, guys. Use the knowledge that you get here in the Glory UGA podcast and go win yourself some money. Because not only is it college football season, but it's winning season. Winning season has returned at my bookie, which means doubling your first deposit. It means watching live sports and betting live. We know college football is back. We talked all about that the past couple of weeks. The NFL is back. The NBA is kind of down the stretch. Major League Baseball is entering the playoffs. 
So there's a lot of sports all across the spectrum to be betting on. Hey, we got the U.S. Open, the, the Golf U.S. Open this weekend. So get in on the action. Use promo code OVERTIME. And guys, double your first deposit. I mean, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is put some money in there, and they will absolutely double your first deposit, give you extra free money to play with, just designed to add more excitement to all the games that you're watching. Bet with the best this football season for your chance to win big. Again, use promo code OVERTIME and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. And as I've told you guys throughout the week, Overtime, the company that we're partnered with, they're going all in for our listeners this fall. We are giving away $500 in cash to one lucky person who takes advantage of this offer. So all you gotta do guys is really simple. When you make your deposit, just take a quick screenshot of your MyBookie account and just email that to overtime at advertisecast.com. That's overtime at advertisecast.com. 500 bucks, man, 500 bucks given away to one lucky winner at the end of September. All you gotta do is create account, deposit, screenshot, email, boom, you're entered into the drawing. But all right, guys, let's get back to these questions. I know we're really low on that first question because I think it's a really important question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through all the rest of these questions. I might not be able to spend as much time on all of them, but I definitely will touch on all of them for sure. And the next one, we're going to go with Jamil. It's a great question. I don't think we've had a question from Jamil in a while. It's been a minute. So welcome back, man. We're glad to have you back here. And Jamil asks, what is one player you would bring back for this year's team on offense and defense. The player has to be from the past three years. Okay, so when you're looking at who these players might be, the way my mind's working with this is I'm thinking, okay, it's gotta be a combination of what position do we have kind of a deficiency at this season that we could really use some help at? And also how talented was that former player? Kind of a combination of both things here. So offensively, I'm gonna go, you know what? I'm gonna go with Andrew Thomas. It's not because I don't have faith in Jamari Salyer. I, I like Jamari Salyer. I think he's going to have a really good season for us. But at right tackle, I'm not saying I don't trust Owen Condon. I just don't know enough about the guy. I have not seen the guy play since he stepped foot on campus a couple years ago. I don't know. Now, obviously, he's made a move. The coaches trust him. He's kind of had that spot locked down. It seems like all preseason camp here, all fall camp. So hopefully he's going to be really good. But right now, I don't know. To me, that's a question. That's a question. Whereas I feel I've seen Jamari Salyer. I've seen him start a game. I saw him start the bowl game against Baylor. I feel more confident in him. So I'd feel really good about our offensive line, much better. Not that I feel bad about our O-line right now, but I'd feel even better if we could slide Jamari Salyer over to right tackle where he played against Baylor and then insert Andrew Thomas at left tackle. I think then we'd be in really, really good shape, which is important when you're going to have a new quarterback back there. could potentially be a true freshman quarterback. Protecting him is going to be of the utmost importance. So I go Andrew Thomas offensively. Defensively, this is tough for me because, again, like, when I'm looking at, all right, where is our deficiency on defense? I don't know if we have like a major deficiency on defense. Maybe depth in the secondary, but in terms of like our starting group on defense, I feel really good about all those guys. And maybe you can say well, we need some more guys on the defensive line, but over the past three years, who are the elite defensive linemen that we've had? We've had some good players. Like Tyler Clark was a good player. But was he an elite player that would really help this this team? I, I don't know if the answer is yes. So I'm just going to go with a guy that's the most talented guy I've seen in our defense. Maybe from a talent perspective, maybe 
in my lifetime, I mean, I'm not as old as some people that listen to the show. I don't go back as far. I think David Pollock was the most disruptive player that we've had on defense, especially for a three-year span. For a single season, like Roquan Smith's 2017 season was just out of this world. So I feel really good about Monty Rice, and I like the options we have beside him with, with N'Kobe Dean and Quay Walker. But those guys aren't Ra- Roquan Smith. They're not Roquan Smith. So as good as we're going to be on defense, if you throw Roquan Smith into the mix— Oh, dude, we just took that up a level. So I'm going to go Roquan on defense. I'll stick with Andrew Thomas on offense. That's where I go. I miss Roquan, man. That, that one year in 2017, Jesus, man, what a what a freaking monster he was. All right, next up, we got a question from Alexander. We always appreciate it, Alexander. And he asks, I've been hearing a lot of buzz about Jermaine Burton coming out of the last scrimmage. What's the likelihood he is one of our starting receivers game one? So I kind of answered this. Uh, with a different question in the first part of this final preseason mailbag. So for me, I think the chances are really high. Curtis does not have him starting right now. He had Kyrus Jackson starting opposite George Pickens, but I got Jermaine Burton starting right now for a couple of reasons. Obviously, all the things that we've heard about him throughout uh, the summer, with summer workouts. I mean, look, going back and just watching his tape in high school, you saw that this guy was a very polished receiver. And you hear you hear the guys that, that train him, what they say about him, they just kind of rave about him. And then on top of all of that, in the final fall scrimmage, he's coming out there with the one offense first alongside George Pickens. I mean, maybe the rotation just fell that way. That's what Kirby Smart would tell you. But I don't know, man. I'm not sure if I'm buying that. I think Jermaine Burton, all signs are pointing to him at least being a major contributor. I'm I'm going to say that I think he's going to start. I, I think he's going to start game one. So I would say the likelihood is pretty strong. Everything just adds up to me. It just adds up. But good question. Uh, all right. Next up, we got a couple questions from our man, Cliff. Thank you, Cliff. We always appreciate the support, man. And Cliff also has a question that, that includes Jermaine Burton here, focused on the wide receivers. Cliff asks, if George Pickens is the number one wide receiver and Jermaine Burton is number two, who's the third most impactful wide receiver that will emerge this season? That's a good question, Cliff. I think it should be Demetrius Robertson. That's who I think it should be at this point. I mean, it is money time for D-Rob. He has got to put up or shut up this season. It is time for him to step up. Third year here on campus. I know it's, I guess, his third offensive system, but he's got to really explode on the scene if he wants to have an NFL future. But I'm just not sure I'm ready to go there yet. I want to. I really like D-Rob. I think he's a great young man, and I really am rooting for him. I want him to do well. But I just haven't seen it consistently from him. I, I do have some hope that with this kind of vertical passing game that I expect Todd Munkin to, to implement more of than what we've seen in the past, that that could really fit D-Rob's game with his speed. But D-Rob, you know, yes, he has great speed, but he's not the most dangerous guy in terms of his lateral quickness in a short area. Uh, he, he's got to be a little bit more physical, and he's worked on that. He's improved on the, in that area, but he's got to continue to improve. So I, I'm hopeful, but hope isn't going to cut it for me. I'm going to go with Kiaris Jackson here. He's a guy that came on towards the end of last season, dealt with an injury early in the year. For a lot of really good things about him behind the scenes from some people that are able to kind of see what's going on at some of these scrimmages. So I, I really like what I see in Kyrus Jackson. He's kind of a hard-nosed player. I think he's got some versatility to his game. He's a leader on, on this offense, on an offense that really doesn't have a ton of leaders right now. I think Kyrus Jackson could be that guy. I, I, I wouldn't count out Matt Landers. I know people were really hard on him last year, including myself and Curtis as well. We, we were hard on him just like all you guys were. But as I said all throughout last year, I think 
Matt Landers has a lot of talent. I think he has the physical ability. I think he's got the frame. I mean, he looks the part. He's got the physical ability. He, it was always just, just, it was in his head. It was in his head last year. His hands weren't always great. And there were some catches that he should have made that he didn't. You're kind of like, oh my God, oh my God, what are you doing? So many of those stood out. I mean, there wasn't just one. You got one in the Florida game. You got one in the SEC title game. I mean, they're just, they're, there's too many to count. But he has the physical tools. So if the light ever goes on for Matt Landers, I think the guy can be really good. I just, I can't guarantee the light's going to go on. I don't know. I hope, again, but just like D-Rob, I can't count on hope. I can hope, but I, I can't count on that. So I think Kiaris Jackson would be my safest bet to be the third most impactful receiver to emerge. And who knows? It could be some of the other young freshmen besides Jermaine Burton. Uh, Marcus Rosemey would certainly be a guy to watch out for there. But I, right now I'm going to stick with Kiaris Jackson. Uh, sticking with Cliff, he's got another question. How much will the tight ends and running backs be used in the passing game this year? Will the middle of the field be utilized more than we've ever seen under Coach Kirby Smart with Todd Munkin as offensive coordinator? So, yes, as I've been saying throughout the offseason, I haven't seen the offense, but based off what we know of Munkin's background, along with the word that I'm getting out of camp, I think the answer is a lot, especially when it comes to the running back position. James Cook in particular. Dajan Edwards is another guy that I've heard has been getting a lot of looks here, some work in the passing game the past couple of weeks here as we near the, the, the first game week. So uh, he's a name that most people wouldn't really think as a guy that could see some early playing time as a true freshman. With Kendall Milton being out with a hamstring injury, you've seen Dajan Edwards get some more looks. And he's another really good guy too from everything I understand, kind of quiet behind the scenes, kind of got that Nick Chubb vibe to him in that regard. So I, I, I really hope he has a chance to make some plays this year. I think he can be a good play for us out of the backfield, but especially James Cook. I mean, he's the key right here as receiver of the backfield with his versatility. I think we're going to use him a lot in that role. Tight ends, I would have said absolutely with Trey McKitty being healthy, but he's out right now. He had his knee scoped. He's almost certainly going to miss week one. He hopefully will be back for week two against Auburn. And I think that, that would be a big boost for the team. So with him involved, yeah, I think we would be throwing the tight ends more. But right now you got John Fitzpatrick coming in who hasn't played a ton a little bit, but he hasn't been the guy. He's probably going to start week one. Darnell Washington, the big six foot seven true freshman, he's going to get a lot of snaps as well with the with the offense, uh, kind of as that number two tight end. So, I mean, yeah, we can throw the ball to them, especially Darnell Washington in the red zone. But without McKitty's experience there, I don't know if we'll throw the ball to the tight end as much early in this season. So we'll see. But yeah, running back for sure. Uh, will we utilize the middle of the field more often? Yes. Todd Munkin, one of the, the hallmarks of his play calling as offensive coordinator is he wants to attack space. He wants to spread teams out, create space, and then attack space. And that, to attack space means you can't only use certain parts of the field. You've got to use all parts of the field, including the middle of the field. I also think we're going to have a quarterback, whoever it ends up being, is going to have a much stronger arm than Jake Fromm did. As good as Jake was for us, he certainly did not have the strongest arm. Plenty good enough arm, but not the strongest arm. And that can that, mm-hmm. that can really hurt you when you're throwing across the middle because you got to fit balls in a tight window. So a lot of bodies are there in the middle of the field. So I don't. We didn't throw the ball a lot through, through the middle of the field with Jake Fromm. I think part of that was schematic. I also think that part of that because we would run routes with guys across the middle. But you you could watch Jake close and you would see like he would just pass up guys in the middle of the field because I just don't think he was as confident with his arm. He really liked those outbreaking routes, which he threw exceptionally well. We saw that on display all the time, but we just didn't throw the ball in the middle of the field very often. I do think that's going to change under Todd Munkin. All right, and Cliff's last question here today, who is going to be the most impactful freshman this year if you had to pick just one? Cliff says he's going with Jalen Carter as his pick. I think Jalen Carter's a great pick. If I was picking someone on defense, I would go with Jalen Carter, especially with Keely Ringo not being in, in the picture right now with his shoulder injury. 
But overall on the team, I'm going to go Jermaine Burton. I think this guy's going to start from day one. I think Jalen Carter's going to play a lot, and he might take over a starting role at some point in the season. He's going to, I think he's going to make an impact. I just, I think Burton's going to have more opportunities, especially early on, to make that impact. And I think he's just going to be a big-time player for us. I really, really do. I think he can have a George Pickens caliber season from last year. I think he can have that type of season, especially when you consider the fact that we're more than likely going to be throwing the ball more than we did last year. Okay, with this next question, we're kind of sticking on the same theme, but this time we're talking about year two guys, rising sophomores who played a little bit last year. So Trevor asks, who do you think is going to have the biggest year two jump between N'Kobe Dean, Tyreek Stevenson, and Nolan Smith? That's a good question, Trevor. That's a tough question to answer. I think all three of those guys are in line to make a pretty big jump this year. I'm going to go into Kobe Dean, though, because I, I don't think he has the highest ceiling of those three guys. In fact, I would say he might have the third highest ceiling of those three guys, but I also think he's the closest right now to having a path to more playing time. I think Nolan's going to play more than he did last year, but he's still got to compete with Aziz Ojolari, Jermaine Johnson, who's really put himself in good position. Adam Anderson's going to have a role, but he's still going to be in the top three of the outside linebackers, and we just we really most of the time only have one of those outside linebackers on the field at a time in our base looks. There are packages where we bring more of them on the field at the same time. In our base nickel looks, we're only usually going with one of those guys at a time. So I don't know if we'll have as much opportunity to, to play. Tyree Stevens is kind of the same thing here. I think Mark Webb's probably going to open the season as, as the starter, as I said on part one. I think that Stevenson will be the starter at the money position, but we're only in our dime package, you know, on third downs, third and long situations. We're not in that look all that often, unless you're playing LSU and you're in that pretty much the entire game with, with how they played last year offensively. So I think he'll play. I just don't know if he'll get as much playing time as a guy like Nicobe Dean. Because I think Nicobe Dean is probably going to start an inside linebacker beside Monty Rice. I think he's going to get more playing time than those guys. So by virtue of that, I'm going to go with him to have a bigger impact in his second year on campus than Nolan Smith or Tyreek Stevenson. But I certainly believe it's only a matter of time before both Tyreek and Nolan Smith really, really explode onto the scene. But right now for this year, I'm going to go Nicobe Dean. All right, next up, I love this question from Trey. Thanks, Trey. This is, this is a good question, man. Got a little humor to it. So Trey asks, do you believe Kirby Smart is a defensive guru or that the, quote, portal master trademark, that is literally what the question says, portal master with the trademark, or is the portal master, which is AKA, by the way, if you're not familiar with who he's talking about, Dan Mullen, or is the portal master more of an offensive genius? You must decide between one or the other. Both cannot be true. So again, Basically, is Kirby Smart more of a defensive guru or is Dan Mullen more of an offensive genius? Got to pick one, right? Well, there's only one true answer as far as I'm concerned. You guys that listen to this show all offseason, I address the Kirby Smart and Dan Mullen conversation at different points throughout the offseason. So you know, my answer is Kirby Smart. There's only one true answer here. And look, guys, I'm not saying that Dan Mullen is not a good offensive coordinator. He's a good coach. He's a good play caller. He designs a good system. But this notion that he's just some sort of offensive genius, that is entirely a media creation. If you go back the last five years and looked at where his offense has finished in the total yardage rankings, but the total offense rankings each of the past five years, he's finished last year 45th in the country, 42nd in the country, 46th in the country, 44th in the country, and he topped out over the last five years at number 31 nationally. That's the last five years with Dan Mullen calling plays as an offense coordinator, or as the head coach, but really calling plays and being in charge of that offense. Yes, I know three of those years were at Mississippi State where you don't have as much talent. You got to mention that, of course. You got to look at context. But guys, the past two years, he had a major upgrade in his talent working at Florida 
No, he did not have as much talent as we had, but a lot of talent to work with there at the University of Florida, especially offensively. They had some really good players, Van Jefferson, Freddie Swain, Tyree Cleveland, Kyle Pitts, a tight end. There's been a lot of weapons for him to work with, and he still only put up the 45th and 42nd best offenses in the country each of the past two years at Florida. All right? That's a good coordinator. Those are good numbers. They're solid, but that is not even approaching elite status as an offensive play caller. That's not even coming close to approaching that. Really, the only time he's ever had elite offenses as a play caller was at Florida. We had all that talent along with Tim Tebow running the show there. And then we had Dak Prescott for a couple years at Mississippi State. And when you have those players, yeah, you need good players to put up good numbers. That's one of the reasons Kirby's been so good defensively is that he's recruited really good players. That certainly helps. But the fact is, the vast majority of his career calling plays, Dan Mullen has been a good but not elite offensive coordinator in play caller. That's just, that's the fact, right? Now look at Kirby on the flip side, the last five years, where where have his defenses finished in the final total defense rankings? Well, we finished third, 13th, 6th, 16th, and third. Those are Kirby Smart's last five defenses. And the, the last one was, was with Alabama, right? But here at Georgia, third, 13th, 6th, 16th in total defense. And that's not including scoring defense, rush defense, anything like that. Anything like that. We're just looking at total defense numbers. That is an elite defensive coordinator, an elite defensive play caller. And I know, yeah, okay, we have a defensive coordinator technically, Mel Tucker and Dan Lanning, I get that. But Kirby Smart is intimately involved in those defenses. Yes, those are very much his defenses, just as much as they are Dan Lanning's or Mel Tucker's. There's no doubt about that. So to me, the numbers spelled out, what you see on the field spells it out, and also what's happened head-to-head between those two guys as I've gone over throughout the offseason. Kirby Smart is a much better defensive coach than Dan Mullen is an offensive coach. You can say I'm crazy because that's what the media has sold to everyone. They try to convince you of that. They just kind of repeat it over and over and over and over again until everyone just accepts it as true. But if you look at it critically and actually peel back the layers and look at the numbers, you will see that no, they've sold you a lie. It's not true. Yeah, Dan Mullen's a good offensive coordinator, but he has never really been consistently elite calling offensive plays. He just hasn't. Whereas Kirby, pretty much from the get-go, yeah, he's had great players. I get that. You got to have great players. But there's a lot of teams that have great players that don't put up those kind of numbers, right? And it really frustrates me. I know I've talked about this a lot, but when when people suggest that Kirby Smart, he's just a recruiter, he can't coach. Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? That is another narrative, a media-created narrative, and also maybe a rival fan base-created narrative that's that's just been repeated over and over and over and over again until people have just accepted it as true. Because like in big games, well, you know, we lose the national title game. Well, you forget the fact that we won the big game in the Rose Bowl, right? You forget the fact that we won the big game, the SEC title game in 2017 to get there. You forget all the times that he's beaten Florida, but he can't win the big game because he's not that good of a coach. He's just a really good recruiter that can't develop his talent. That is ridiculous. That's not even close to accurate. If you actually know what you're talking about and you actually look at the context and look at the situation and look at the facts, you would know you've been sold a lie. But that's fine. Whatever. Let them do their thing. But yeah, give me Kirby all day long. All day long. All right, let's move on here. Next question is from Fire Dan Quinn. Yeah, Fire Dan Quinn. We started that up already, haven't we? All right, so he asked, should we be wary of Scott Sinclair rushing players back from injury? He, he cites that Zamir White was hurt in one of his first practices back, even though it was the other knee. And Dominic Blaylock re-aggravated the same ACL recently. Can't say much about JT Daniels since we haven't seen practice, but he mostly set during uh, the most recent scrimmage. And he knows all ACL injuries aren't the same, but is it time to start looking 
at what we're doing with these guys and maybe potentially rushing them back? And it's a very fair question. I think anytime you have some injuries like that, especially the re-injuries, you, you, you have to look at things with a critical eye. I think that's fair. But what I would say is I would not put it on Scott Sinclair. If there is an issue, and I'm not convinced there is an issue. I think maybe it's more anecdotal right now. I would I think it would go more around Corson, right? He's he's the head trainer who is the one that actually clears these guys for practice, for contact, for working out, for drills. He's the one step by step that's working with these guys through their rehab and telling the coaches, okay, he's cleared for this, he's clear for that. He's he's the one checking those boxes off and telling them, okay, we're at this phase in the recovery. That's not so much Scott Sinclair, who's the strength coach. Sinclair has to listen to what Ron Corson says. That's the way it's structured. That's the way the protocol works. As a strength coach, he can't let these guys, like let's say if you tear your knee up, well, he can't have these guys doing leg exercises unless Ron Corson tells them to. He can only have these guys doing things that Ron Corson has cleared them to do. So I wouldn't put it as much on Sinclair as I would make when we're talking about re-injuries. Now, if it, if you start seeing a lot of guys just tear their ACL all throughout, I mean, knock on wood right now, but if you start seeing a lot of these like hamstring injuries, those soft muscle injuries, things like that, then maybe you start to look at the strength coach and say, okay, what are we doing? What are we doing here that's that's putting too much stress on these guys' muscles, on their ligaments, on their joints, and maybe causing some of these injuries? But I haven't seen a, a, a serious rash of those. I mean, it, it's a contact sport. In, in athletics, things happen. All these are non-contact things, like you know. but still, that, that, that could come back to the way you're training. But in terms of re-injuries, I think you would look more at Ron Corson. But again, I'm not smart enough to really call him out critically on this because I just don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I don't have all the information. In fact, I think they're being really cautious with JT Daniels. From what I understand, JT Daniels, yeah, he had his initial procedure back in September of last year. and I've kind of, So I've kind of been like, whoa, like, what is going on? And that's why I've kind of been asking some of the people I know, like, it's, we're talking about a year out, man. Like Nick Chubb came back in like eight months. How was JT Daniels not cleared for full contact yet? I, I just haven't understood. I can't wrap my head around it. And what I was told was, oh yeah, by the way, he had a, apparently had a second procedure in December of last year. And I don't know exactly the nature of that procedure. I, I don't know. Maybe it was to clear out some some scar tissues that's maybe not together all that uncommon. I mean, it happens at times. I've, I've heard of that happening before, but it's never a good, a good thing. Anytime you have to open somebody up, it's never great, especially when you're talking about an ACL injury. Again, I don't know what the second procedure was, but I, I have gotten some information over the past week or so kind of asking around like what is going on why is this guy not cleared you I'm getting freaking I'm getting freaked out here and what I was told what I found out was oh yeah well it looks like he had a second procedure okay so that kind of makes a little bit more sense because that procedure was about nine months ago and I don't know again what that procedure was the nature of it but that kind of makes a little bit more sense so again I, I just don't know enough to put it on on anyone right now and I don't think we have a major issue compared to some of the other teams that we've seen that have just been decimated by by some of these serious injuries. But um, it, it is a good question, and it's important to ask these kind of things for sure. All right, we're going to wrap things up with a couple of kind of interesting questions, some fun questions. It's always nice to end these, these mailbag shows with some fun questions. we got a couple good ones here at the end of the show. And uh, Jonathan asks, what is y'all's game day routine? I know Tyler usually goes for a run with the misses. But what are y'all's plans now with COVID? Food, drink of choice, etc. Great question, man. This is this is this is a good one. I like this one. Appreciate this question. Let me open my answer to this question with an admission that I am very much a weird person. You're gonna think I'm very weird with how I answer this question because I am weird. I am I am a special kind of weird, and I'm very much a creature of habit. I know that I have self-awareness, just putting that out there. 
But this year, in terms of what my game day routine is going to be, it's still very much up in the air for me right now because here I am, I still have not given up on finding my way into every game somehow. That might not be entirely realistic, but I have not given up hope on that. I got my Alabama tickets over the weekend and I am actively looking for the best deal for all the other games, uh, the road games in particular here. But the thing is, I don't live in a vacuum. I do not live in a vacuum. I have other people in my life, most importantly among them, my wife, who is amazing. She's wonderful, but she's my traveling partner. She really is. So all these row games, she is a trooper. She's incredible. She is the one that I travel with to all of these football games. And honestly, I'll be real with you. I know this might sound weird to a lot of you. I'm just not interested in traveling to a game unless she's with me. That's just me, all right? That's it's, it's kind of our thing that we do together. And she's still kind of on the fence about going to some of the longer road trip games like Arkansas and Missouri because... I mean, it's not that she's irrationally afraid of COVID, but I get it. It's it's hard to know what will and what won't be open in these different locations. And she has no issue actually going into the games. I mean, that she's going to the Alabama game. I mean, we're really excited about that. We're probably gonna make a day trip of that. But going into and, and, and like going into uncrowded bars or restaurants, like we do that in Athens still right now. So that's not the issue. It's just tough to know just how crowded bars and restaurants are going to be on game weekends in these college towns. And I think she very reasonably isn't exactly comfortable being in an environment where everyone's kind of up all over you, breathing on you. Like that's I get that. So I'm having to weigh that um, absolutely here in figuring out like what what am I going to do for the game days this year and am I going to be there at, at all these games? But I would be lying to you if I pretended that a little piece of me wouldn't die if I couldn't go to the games this season. Like I would be lying if I said that. And I'm really, really trying to be mature and come to terms with that possibility. But it's been a long time since I, I've missed a game. I've been really, really fortunate, really fortunate. And just, you know, I don't have kids, so we're able to do this. It just makes sense for us. I mean, we, we get to travel. We don't have the, the financial burdens of having having children. So we, we, we're able to do things like this. So I'm really, really fortunate. And it, it's literally what I live for and look forward to all year long, going to all these games, especially the road trips. I love the road trips, man. I mean, I love going to San Francisco Stadium, but it's really cool to get into a different environment and kind of be there and kind of support your team in enemy territory. I have a lot of fun in doing that. I really enjoy that. So we'll see on that front whether or not I'm actually going to be at these games. I I, I don't know. I hope, but I, I don't know. We'll see how that works out. Um, but let's just assume it's a normal game weekend here in Athens, right? So I'm always training. You mentioned running. So yeah, I'm always training for the Ath Half each fall this time of year. So the, the morning starts, a game day morning in Athens starts with a run for me. Yes, you're correct about that. And in the, in the mileage, it varies depending on the week. You know, some weeks it's higher mileage, some it's not. It just depends on the training plan. But where you go wrong is I don't run with my wife. I do not run with the missus. I do not do that. And the big reason for that is she just gets up at a ridiculously early time every day of the week. It's kind of like her internal clock. And she doesn't necessarily like it. She likes being up early, but she doesn't like getting up as early as she does. She just wakes up and she can't go back to sleep. So she goes off and she's up at like 4.30 and she's out running by like 5, right? And I'm not going to do that. So I get up early, but not that early. So I go run. I like to, get as, I like to maximize my sleep as much as humanly possible. So the way I, I, I work it is I, I time it, man, like to the second. So I, I get done my run. I race home, usually with very little time to spare. Got to maximize that sleep. And then we go to a sports bar. Like where, whether I'm in Athens, whether I'm on the road, 
we don't do the traditional tailgate. That's not our thing. We go to a sports bar. That's where we tailgate. That's kind of how we do. I know you can call that, you you can say that's not tailgating. That's fine. But that's what we do before games. We just don't go do the traditional outdoor tailgate thing. And there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, like I said, like I, I run. Sometimes I'm running 10 or 11 miles before a game. That means I would have to get up at like 3 a.m. to get out there to a tailgate spot and, and lock it up and claim our spot before everyone else gets there you need to get there when the, when the spots open up. I'm getting up at like 3 a.m. I'm not doing that. I'm just not doing that. Plus, it's a hassle to cook things and then clean up after it. You got to pack up the stuff after the game. Plus, you know, hey, here in, here in the South, it's really hot the first half of the year. And in the past couple of years, it's been hot all the way to like November. So it's really nice to sit in an air-conditioned sports bar and I am a huge, obviously I'm a Georgia guy. I just love college football though. I want to watch the other games. And yeah, I guess you can plug up a TV with a generator at your tailgate, but you're probably only going to have one TV on. You got people with you and you're arguing over what game to watch. You go to a sports bar, man, you got TVs everywhere. If you get there early enough, which we do, like we get to the to the sports bar about five to 10 minutes before it opens. I call ahead the, the, day, the day before and say, okay, what time are you opening tomorrow? So that I can get there before they open and get my pick of seats and so that I can also make sure my seats are based on the maximum premium TV viewage, right? I want to be able to see the most TVs possible and have the best view, the best angle, all of that. So yes, I told you guys I'm weird, I'm special, but that's kind of how it works. If I'm, if I'm in Athens now, I can walk back home after the game and watch the rest of the games uh, at home. If I'm on the road, well, I go back to the sports bar uh, after the game and, and watch the rest of them. So that's kind of my typical like home game day weekend. We'll see um, We'll see how that works with, with COVID. I think that probably something like that this year for the home games. For the road games, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that plays out. There's still some time to try to figure that one out. But that's a, that's a fun question. And finally, here, got another question from Cliff. And this is another fun question. So I, I put this one at the end. So Cliff asks, do y'all listen to the commentators or the dog's radio crew? It drives my wife crazy. I mute the TV mostly while listening to the radio Plus, with the, with the delay, I know when to look away. I know exactly what you're talking about, Cliff. I will say this, though. I, I haven't, again, I've been, I've been really lucky. I've been really, really fortunate here. I haven't watched a Georgia game from home since college. It's, it's been a long time for me. So I haven't done that as much recently. But as a kid, I absolutely listened to the Dogs radio crew when I was watching games at home on the TV. Larry Munson was a hero to me. That was my guy, man. And it kind of started for me as a little league football player, you know, driving around to games on Saturday mornings, listening to Munson and Lauren on the radio with my dad. Uh, that's where I kind of I fell in love with Larry Munson. And so as I got older and I'm in high school, my games are on Fridays and not on Saturdays. Well, I can sit down and watch college ball on Saturday. So I'm watching the games now. And uh, we absolutely... We had, it wasn't really a great stereo system. I don't even know if you want to call it a stereo system, but we would definitely hook up uh, Larry Munson, and get those calls on, mute the TV. And I, some of my best memories from, from high school in, in, in that era of Georgia football was really just listening to some of those incredible calls, those iconic calls from Larry Munson uh, as I'm watching the, the TV. The Hobnail Boot game, I remember that, watching that game and listening to Larry making that call. I'm running around the house in, it's just a circle, just running around the house. When after that play happened and hearing Larry go, go crazy on that one, it was incredible. And then I also vividly remember the Michael Johnson touchdown catch against Auburn in 2002 to put us in the SEC title game. I remember when that happened, I jumped over the back of our of our sofa, of our couch, onto the couch. Then I started jumping up and down. And yeah, my mom almost murdered me right then and there on the spot. But those are some incredible memories. So 
Yeah, I absolutely used to do that. I, I'm not as familiar with with the crew now. I mean, obviously, I know who they are. I, I know we got Scott Howard and Eric Zire, and, I, and I've I'm familiar with with Howard, obviously, from basketball games too. But I, I just I haven't done it in a while because I've been in most of these games. And but as a kid, for sure, absolutely, I used to do that. But all right, guys, that wraps up our final preseason mailbag. It is now full steam ahead to the 2020 season. We will be back on Friday with our final episode of the Sky and the Enemy series. This time we're going to focus our attention on the Florida Gators. And the next week, dude, it's game week. It is game week. It's almost here. And we'll have you covered pretty much like a typical game week absent the game recap because we're not going to have a game to recap. But we will be back next week with our official preseason picks. We are picking every team and giving their record in the SEC East and the SEC West. We'll pick the conference champion. And I have a lot of fun with that. We're going to try to get all of us on the episode with myself, Charlie, and Curtis. We're going to work that out. We're trying to because I know we've had some requests for that. And we're going to try to make that work, work out for you guys for that particular episode. And then we'll have our Arkansas preview. And then at the end of the week, we'll wrap it up with our first picks of the week episode for this 2020 season. So a lot of great stuff coming your way, guys. Always appreciate the support. Thanks for listening. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>